0: Thank you, gentlemen, what a morning already to worship our holy God. Let's continue in that posture of worship as you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. If you are visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, just look in front of you, you'll see one in the racks there. Please take it. Follow along. 2nd book, 32nd chapter, Exodus 32. These recent chapters, of course, have covered Moses' time on Mount Sinai. Moses has been there. In fact, from the end of chapter 24, if you think with me, to the end of chapter 31, he's been receiving instruction, and we would say specific instruction, from Yahweh. We've covered that. And as we noted last week, God has now, where we arrived today, finished speaking. Moses will come down. As we begin this week, let us be reminded of that time marker. Look at the end of chapter 31. This is where we're at, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai... The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Forty days, Moses has been away. And while he is away, chapter 32 records for us what is going on at the foot of the mountain. So now let us read that. Let us read that as chapter 32 opens, we get this account. Starting in verse 1, let's read the beginning of it. To the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Let us pray. Our Lord, we consider with sobered hearts the text just before us, and all that will flow from it. God, we beg that you would give us what we need to see what is in this account for our example, for our learning, for our sanctification. Illumine our eyes, activate our frames, our hands and our feet to apply this great truth, Lord, that sin is great and you are greater. Father, we beg and pray that now as we look at this text. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Friends this is one of those texts that speak for itself does it not this is a great sin this is a great sin a great sin for many reasons idolatry rebellion and we could go on and on but it is predominantly a great sin because of its time its place and its context that's what we cannot miss we cannot miss that to begin this is a great sin because of how it happens where it happens, and when it happens. It's a great sin. Let us reflect for a moment on this time in history. And once again, I'm indebted to the Reverend Bush from the 19th century. He's going to help us set our hearts on this text here. This is very good, a little bit more at length, but I think it'll be helpful. Listen very carefully as he sets the context here in chapter 32 in this great sin. I quote him, quote, If ever a situation occurred in the history of man in which we were to expect the presence and prevalence of a deep and awestruck sense of the majesty of God, together with a grateful acknowledgement of His goodness, and then listen to this, and a trembling quietness to avoid anything which might offend a holy God. It was that in which the people of Israel were now placed at the base of the hallowed mount. They had experienced the most incontestable and astonishing proofs of the divine power, his favor and his love. Little more than 30 days had passed since they had witnessed a scene of grandeur and glory such as never before had been seen and been afforded to mortal eyes. God had delivered them to his holy law in the midst of thunder, lightning, earthquake, fire, and the presence of the ministering angels. The terms of a sacred, binding covenant had been proposed to them, to which they with one voice acceded, and indeed the last thing which is related of them prior to the present chapter is that, and we've read this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Even now Moses had gone up to the mount to commune with God on their behalf as their faithful representative. He had transacted all their great concerns. The 40 days were almost completed. And he was just upon the point of coming down, bearing the sacred tablets in his hand, and fully instructed and authorized to set up the tabernacle worship among them, when, lo, the innate depravity of the human heart breaks out with a force utterly astounding. And unbelieving impatience ripens at once into an act of gross idolatry. Who could have thought it? Daily fed by manna from heaven, daily refreshed by water from the rock, surrounded by miracles of might against which it would seem impossible that their eyes could be closed. Who could have anticipated that in utter defiance of the commandment to which they had so lately and so solemnly avowed obedience, they should have ordered the fabrication of other gods and change their glory into the likeness of an ox that eats grass. Yet, Bush closes with this. This is the mournful scene which we are now called to contemplate. Such an apt description of where we are, is it not? Really grasps the scene, and the very sobering, sad scene here. Listen, they exchange their glory... He referenced, that's the glory with God, the glory of God. For what? For the image of an ox that eats grass. That's taken directly from Psalm 106. That's Do you see the transaction there? Glory of God, no. The glory of an ox that eats grass, yes. And this is, beloved, noted the exchange in sin. This is the economy of sin. It exchanges those things. It's the exchange in sin, in idolatry, in rebellion, to trade what is glorious of God for what is gross of earth. That's the transaction of man. That is the way of man. In fact, to be pointed, that is earthly worship. Earth worship, low worship, temporal worship, the worship of perishables. The worship of materials, the worship of what we can see, there it is, can I touch it? And beloved, this is the first lesson that we will see in this text this morning, and it is indeed that, earthly worship. Our senses so prone to lead us astray, to fix our worship on what we can see. Our flesh says this, and one wonders, our flesh says this, at least I can see the ox, And bow down to a calf. That's good. Yes, the thirst for a relic. The lust for a charm. The desire for an object, a person. Anything that our eyes can see, taste, feel, to bow down and revere. Yet our faith, Christian, true faith, has never been about worshiping by sight, has it? Or, by any of our senses... Hebrews 11.27 reminds us that by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for listen, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 2 Corinthians 5.7 famously says, we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. With that, another lesson for us in this text as we begin has to do with the inability of sight, the limitation of sight. Remember the context of this great sin, great signs, great wonders, great miracles. You know the scene. We've studied it. Yet in spite of all that, plagues in Egypt, water from the rock, God's miraculous uh, revealing to them of the law and his grandeur, all of that, in spite of all of those things, that in one sense we could say activate the senses, in spite of all of those things, Israel still lost faith. In fact, one might say, one might say this, is this what seeing wonders does? Yet the craving for signs is the cry of the atheist and Jewish leader, Matthew Matthew 16, verse 1, alike. They both cry for it, give me a sign. And so we need to see, beloved, that sight and sign is not a necessity for faith. In fact, if we were to push it, we could say at times it would be an impediment. Here at the foot of Sinai, there was never a more sign-saturated, yet market, faithless group. A final lesson we need to mention off the top is this. Sin needs no influence. It is true, believe me, bad company ruins good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33, that is a true axiom, no doubt. However, It would be a fallacy to think that bad company is the only way to ruin. No church, our Bibles are clear that our morals are already ruined where? At birth. At birth. Romans 5.12 reminds that because of Adam we all enter this world in a natural sinful state. That's our bent, sin and rebellion. The Bible teaches that Adam's son, Cain, shows that. And the Israelites, as we'll see, give graphic evidence of that theological truth. Israelites had departed Egypt, but they had not arrived in Canaan. Do you see that? They weren't in Egypt with that influence, but they weren't in Canaan with that influence, were they? More than living in a bubble in the wilderness, one might say, at least they're to themselves, they were actually left alone to themselves. Now, with those lessons previewed and in our mind, let us turn our attention to God's Word with a closer look at this account. Let us begin with the great sin we've already previewed. And our first point, you'll see this here, rebellion. Rebellion. Back to verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Stop there. What we need to notice right away, look at that, is what the people are seeing. What are they seeing What do they see? They see delay. Do you see that? They see delay. The people saw delay. They looked and saw Moses not returning. Oh, how our eyes right can do this to us. They see delay. Christian impatience has led to a great number of sins, has it not? And here, it is the forerunner to this great sin. Impatient Saul, of course, waiting for Samuel, took it upon himself to play priest. 1 Samuel 15. Impatient Peter uttered lots of rash things, didn't he? Then he drew a sword, Matthew 26. Yes, church, impatience is dangerous. Now check that. Impatience is deadly. Impatience is not the cute vice that we chuckle about. Impatience, as we know and as we will see, kills. Impatience kills. Listen, both physically and spiritually. God is not impatient, is he? No, in fact, he is perfect patience, 1 Timothy 1.16. Thus, as God followers with the perfect Holy Spirit indwelling us, enabling us, we recognize the command and need to cultivate patience. This is godliness. Beloved, God didn't give them a timetable on Moses being away. He only gave them a promise and reams of evidence, by the way. Deliverance and food and so on. And beloved, that's all that we need too. The person and promise of God. That's it. Listen, timetables are just that. Bound by time, space and earth. God is not. Wait on the Lord. And listen, if you struggle with patience, redeem the time. Make good of the time. While you wait on the Lord, seek Him. Learn of Him. Study Him. Sing of Him. Fellowship in His name. Get busy while you wait with the things that are conducive to pursuit of the Lord. Christian, growing in patience is a matter of your sanctification. Consider verse 1. Look at it again. The people gathered themselves, look at this, together to Aaron. If you were to look at that in the original, you could also render that against Aaron. Impatience leads to frustration, and frustration, which is anger, leads to what? Hostility. They come against Aaron, the one left in command, and you feel the force of this, like a mob coming up to Aaron with a demand. Of course, Moses is away. So they feel the liberty, right, often. We can do this. Let's go up to that, Aaron. Now the sin has moved from conception to birth, James 1.15. Death is near. And it comes from Israel's own mouth, one of a series of staggering truths in this chapter. Is this not true? And here we see the first one, up, make us God's. Like Egypt's? Like the ones we just saw trounced? Like the impotent gods? Those gods, is that what you want made? Impotent false gods crafted by human hands? By the way, beloved, the irrationality of sin is on grand display here, is it not? One, it was God Almighty, their deliverer, provider, the pillar of cloud and fire leading them. Not now, just days later... Right? Not now. Not now. They're not looking at that pillar of cloud and fire. They don't desire the one true God. Eyes not on Him. Where is their eyes more pointedly? Where is their flesh? Where is their lust? Up. Make for us gods. Make for us gods. Two, look at this. Sin is blind. Sin is blind all the time. All of a sudden, Moses, look at this. Moses is some man. And they've forgotten him. Do you see that? The man Moses. The man Moses. That's what sin does, beloved. When you give sin a foothold, listen to me. Sin gives you amnesia. Every time. The man Moses. At this point, one would expect Moses' older brother Aaron to bring sense. You would expect this. You'd be forgiven if you thought this. Even a first reading of this account... This account should have been short. It should just have verse 2. Exodus 32 verse 2 should say, and Aaron rebuked them, chapter 33. And not only would we be on to the next chapter, 33 we'd actually be on to 35. You have three chapters here because of this great sin. Three chapters is the result of one great sin. And a great sin is not only presented, but listen, it's fully enabled by Aaron. We brace ourselves to read verse 2 to 6 again. Look at it. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And stunningly, Aaron agrees to this great sin, worse he oversees the sin project. Do you see that? He just slips into the role of foreman. We're gonna get this thing done. He orders gold and jewelry, he makes an altar, and then Aaron, the priest, by the way, at the time declares a feast. Now a couple of details here that we need to point out before we move on too quickly. I want you to notice Aaron's take on this. Look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Wow, Aaron. A feast to the Lord. Not to the calf. That would be far too overt. People may start talking, right? You're going to make a feast to the calf? No, a feast to the Lord. To the Lord. It always reads and sounds better when you say the things that you do. Yes, lust and sin and flesh. It always goes down better when you say it's in the name of the Lord. Every time. There is no more of a blanket and a conduit for sin than to say, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. I'm rebelling in the name of the Lord. I'm committing idolatry in the name of the Lord. Stay away from me, don't talk to me, because it's in the name of the Lord. And so it is, in name. And this is nothing short of syncretism, isn't it? This is syncretism on display. It's a rationale and a cover for sin every time. Worship God, yes, but we're going to do it this way. Leave me alone. Worship to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.8, secondly, by the way, when we think about that line that says they rose up to play in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10.8 tells us this playing, when you talk about the flesh at work, this playing was decidedly sexual, by the way. The epitome of fleshly endeavor. 1 Corinthians 10.8 tells us that. Hence, when we put all this together, this is a great sin. Aaron, you can slap whatever name you want on that. This is a great sin, it's idolatry, it's rebellion. And of course, and we need to say this, God knows, and that brings us to our second point. God knows. It's not just rebellion we see from them, we see now anger. Anger. Westmount, we need to preface this next point with a few comments. It's not just little children or teenagers that need to be reminded of the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. Church, all of us need to see this. The most inane, illogical, and ridiculous tactic of the flesh is this. You know it. Nobody's looking. No one will know. The flesh tricks itself to think the authority is away, and here it is. The flesh limits itself the, only the eyes and the senses of an authority. Once you remove those, no one will know. Listen, God is all knowing. That's Christianity 101, is it not? God is all present as such. His back is not turned on the mountain. Quick, let's do this while Moses is talking to Yahweh. We also know what you will not see is God pretending this didn't happen. We can't miss this. What you will not see is God further excusing the behavior. You know, they were just freshly redeemed. What you will see, and mark this, please, is Anger. God's anger. And maybe you hear anger and you think it is something bad. And listen to me, when it comes to human beings, often, if not all the time, it is. It's a very bad thing. A bad tool wielded in the... Hands of sinners. It is that. Often when we are angry, it would be this, we'd call it this unrighteous anger. What do we mean by unrighteous anger? It means it's emotion flowing not from God, but flowing from self and sin. Our agendas are upset. We've been offended. We're upset because self has been afflicted. That's unrighteous anger. It's just very different to righteous anger. Anger that is justified and it is right. And you might say, maybe you're asking this right now, is there such an anger? Well, yes. Yes, there is. Consider, by the way, the confirmation of this anger in Psalm 78. I'll just give you a couple of verses from this psalm recounting this first generation's great sin to the second generation and the generations following. Psalm 78, verse 21, it says this Therefore, when the Lord heard, heard of the golden calf, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God. Verse 31, the anger of God rose against them. And listen, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. That's a preview of what we're going to see later. Psalm 78, like Psalm 106 dead. making no debate. There is no debate when you read the rest of the Old Testament commenting on how God responds to this. God is angry. God the Father and, of course, God the Son demonstrated righteous anger. You know where? In the New Testament, when he walked into the temple and he saw this place of worship being made as a place of man and marketplace and commerce. The abominations going on in the temple. And what did he do? He turned over those tables in righteous anger. Because it was an abomination before God. So you know righteous anger. Like here, Exodus 32. God is angry. And here it is God is angry because of their sin and the offense to holiness. These are his people. His chosen people. They have been given much. And what did we read off the top? They should know better. And that is the point here. The sin of God's people draws the anger of God. We dare not soften this point, beloved. We dare not. When God's people sin, God is angry. When God's people sin, God is angry. Listen. God is certainly not okay with unbelievers sinning, but of course it's expected. But more than that, and I say that to say unbelievers are not the point here in Exodus 32. Nor are they, mostly all the time, when you look at God's righteous anger. His righteous anger is against his people because they should know better. And thus when God's people sin, God's response is much more noteworthy, is it not? So let's read this next section in God's response to this great sin. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, look, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Westbound, how angry is God? Look at verse 7. He tells Moses, what, that Israel now is, what, your people. Do you see that? Israel, Moses, is your people. Those are words, look at them, in verse 7, akin to disowning them. That's the force there. Akin to Yahweh disowning his people because of this great sin. More, God is not angry. Look at this, because Israel can't help themselves. God is not angry because they have an Israelite disorder. God is not angry because you are just Israelites, you know. God is not angry because of their experience in Egypt. God is not angry for any of those things. Look at verse 7. God is angry... Because the people he delivered from Egypt, look at the text, have corrupted themselves. This is personal responsibility. Nothing else thrown up here, but Israel, you are on the hook for this. There was, again, no one on the hook here, but God's people. They did this to themselves. God is angry because Israel has not only turned from God's command, but look at verse 8, let's not miss this detail. They have turned aside what? quickly in other words haste was made for this great sin like the person that can't wait for the door to close behind any authority like the person sitting there that can't wait for the boss to leave for the parent to leave or the spouse to leave the room and then as soon as they've left the room they make haste to sin that's the force here such a bent to sin by god's people look at it draws the anger of god And speaking of anger, let's be clear here, just as God's word is clear. Look at verse 10. Again, we dare not bring this down. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Is God angry? He says, leave me alone. Not only leave me alone, let my wrath burn hot against them and consume them. Yes, God is angry. His wrath is kindled. This is what sin and rebellion arouse in God's people when they sin against God. This is what is aroused in God every time. Next, intercession. And I recognize to this point there's been nothing encouraging, you may say. Nothing encouraging to this point. I understand it and feel that with you. But that is reality, is it not? If we were to walk verse by verse through this book, this is the reality as we come to this point, is it not? If we attempt to do anything else to this point, it's just us messing with the text. Thankfully, the text keeps going. But we do need to bear in mind the force of that. And I think it's very important this morning when maybe you're provoked by the anger of God and the rebellion of our hearts. If we were just left to our sin, if the chapter ended right there and. To God's response, I want you to consider, beloved, where would we be if we take these words for God's word and truth? Consider we would be left at the base of a mountain, left to our play, left to our great sin, while God looms at the summit, looking down, ready to burn and consume. And we must understand, for those that keep playing that keep clinging to their flesh and do not turn to Christ, this is where they remain. There's a big period here for them. At the foot of the mountain, under God's wrath. That's where they remain, 2 Thessalonians 1. But of course, this account does not end here. It continues gloriously for God's people. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord... As God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God relents. Amazing. God refrains from bringing due wrath upon Israel. Do you see that? i are going to talk about his relenting more in a moment. But I just want us to stop for a moment and think, God relents. There's something going on here, and God relents. First, though, we would say this, by what means did that happen when we think about God relenting? Number one, the answer is Moses, the text tells us. Moses intercedes for Israel. In other words, he steps in the gap between God and Israel. And that is the first and foremost detail we must observe here, church, that sinners... Great sin needs intercession. Great sin and sinners need intercession. That is the only way out for Israel in this great sin. See it. They are helpless before a holy and mighty God. Their deeds earned wrath. They stand naked and helpless at the base of the mountain with the wrath of God on the summit. They are helpless They need intercession. They need someone to stand in the gap for them. They need someone who is unlike them to stand in the gap. Consider Moses. Moses, of course, Exodus 3, is God's chosen. He is the representative. And as we'll see, Moses is the one concerned with holiness. They need him. Now, this is effective intercession. God relents, thus, let's look closer and study the principles found of intercession here. Number one, notice, intercession is self-forgetting. Do you see this? We might have missed it in between the verses here. Intercession is self-forgetting. Go back to the end of verse 10. What did God offer Moses? You can be the next Abraham. You can be the next Abraham. I can hit the reset button, right? And it's going to be you, Moses. What an offer. Imagine the Israelite reading this. You could be the next Abraham. Moses, I will hit the reset button with you. I will discard and move on. Let's try this again. But not only do you not see that, you don't see Moses comment on that at all. He just moves to the plea. Look at that in verse 10. It's almost as if Moses wants nothing to do with that. And he just moves right on to a plea for Israel. Amazing. So intercession is self-forgetting. Two, the focus of intercession is God's people and God's work. Watch what Moses does here. Remember, God in his anger said, Moses, your people have done this. Look what Moses does here. Moses says, oh Lord, they are your people. The intercessor reminds Yahweh that they are your people, Yahweh. They remain your people. Great sin and all. Moses reminds God of his work to deliver Israel with great power and with a mighty hand. So not only that they're your people, but remember the work you did for these people. Yahweh, they're yours, and remember what you've done for them. Thirdly, we see here that intercession is concerned with God's name. Look at verse 12. Moses says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words, this would tarnish your reputation, God. Not only Egypt, but many know why you liberated them. Let my people go, remember Yahweh, so that they would serve me. If you do this now, what of your great name?" Fourth, what can't be missed here is that intercession remembers God's promise. This has kind of been the undertow of the whole few verses here of Moses' plea. Look at verse 13. Remember, says Moses to Yahweh, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that is Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He reminds them, or Yahweh, of the covenant. He reminds Yahweh of the great covenant. Not only does he not hit reset with Moses, he reminds him of the promise made to Abraham. God, remember what you said to Abraham. Remember, and here it is your promise. Your promise. Church, that was intercession for Israel by way of Moses. And what I trust you recognize is that intercession for us in this time, in this age, is similar. But our intercessor is one greater than Moses. Our interceder is their Messiah. Yes, the Christ. And we consider that his great intercession for us was also self-forgetting. Philippians 2, verse 6, it says this, He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And how did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humiliation of the incarnation. That is self-forgetting of God, the Son of God. Intercession, his great intercession for us was not just self-forgetting. His intercession was about God's people. Do you remember this? About God's work and God's name. Do you remember the great prayer of our Lord? The high priestly prayer in John 17? What did he say? When Jesus had spoken these words, this is everything that you read in the upper room discourse, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Listen, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is intercession that is about God's program his people and his plan this is intercession that focuses on what god has asked to do his plan now, it forgets self and thirdly this is intercession that's rooted in promise fulfillment consider acts 2 just to name one acts 2 22 23 this is what peter reminds the crowd, right? At the birth of the church, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, this Messiah is going to the cross because God ordained it, but you're still on the hook for that. But the great intercessory work is a reminder of these things. It's promise, fulfillment, always pointing to that, as we see with Jesus. Along with that, we're reminded that our intercessor, Christ, is not like us. We touched on this in a lesser form with Moses and Israel. But here, when we think about the great intercessor, the great Messiah, he is not merely man, but the God-man. He is sent by God to do the work for us. And we would simply add, because we can't. And as Israel without Moses here would be lost below, and think about this picture, without Moses they would be consumed by what? Wrath. Like that, church for us without Christ, there on that day, we are left naked and exposed to what? God's wrath. In a moment on a mountain, we would be left to God's wrath eternally forever separated from the one that made us. Indeed, let us see this. The reality of intercession here then points to our hope. And I pray you grab a glimpse of that this morning. One last detail warrants a comment here, by the way. Look at verse 14. It says this, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented from the disaster. Does that mean that God changed his mind? Did God change his mind here? Is there a plan B that God activated? Or even just a plan 1A, 1B? What of Numbers 23.19 that says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Or Malachi 3.6 simply says, this: I, the Lord, do not change. Is God second-guessing things here? Or having his will influenced by the lesser? You know, good point, Moses. I see your passion. Let me change my mind. No, for one, let's start with the text. Let's just start with the text. Look at verse 14 to answer this question. And look, it doesn't say the Lord relented from the disaster that he had eternally decreed, does it? It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says he relented from what was spoken in that time to Israel in that moment. He relented from those words. That's one. Secondly, the Bible shows us in many places that God is responsive to prayers of intercession. And here it is. When the change asked for is in accordance with his purposes. You see that? When the change asked for is in accordance with his eternal decree, yes. Remember, his will be done. And Moses' prayer for Israel was precisely in line with God's promise to Israel through Abraham. So not only does Moses say, no, I will not respond to that peace, I actually will remind Yahweh of his great promise. The promise was never to destroy them, was it? If we could push the point here, Moses could say, it's not a promise made through me, Yahweh. You, the unchanging God, made a promise through Abraham, and that must remain. The intercessor here is to keep, On behalf of Israel, saying, you must keep and preserve them. Note that intercessory word. Of course, that doesn't mean sin goes unpunished, and we will see that vividly in a moment. But time betrays us here, and the point here is that God's plan and purposes always stand. In Isaiah 46.10, God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Thirdly, if we get out another one, God's warnings show us a dimension of God's character and nature that would be unseen. This is really important. They show us a dimension. In one sense, in our reasoning, we'd say, well, we know God is merciful, so let's skip all the uncomfortable stuff, right? Seeing anger and wrath and all that. No, 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 no. One way, and this is what we must grab out of this text, One way we know the heinousness of sin before a holy God is to see the anger and the wrath kindled. And I ask you something Is that missing today? Is sin brought down to the lowest shelf? Is sin accommodated? Is sin respectable? one way god never changes his mind his plans are sure one way we know beloved and why we study the whole counsel of god that sin is heinous and grievous before a holy god an abomination is when you see this dimension that lies behind the event in god's providence before we see intercession before we move to the comfortable stuff we have to settle with the uncomfortable and we see anger It's the reason why good news will never be good without the bad news. Let's move on here. Moses will now head down the mountain to face this excuse. I've seen rebellion, anger, intercession, and now excuse. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. We're reminded here that Joshua has been in the proximity of the summit, right? We've looked at this already. He's with Moses. He's in proximity. Remember, they ascended together in chapter 24, leaving Aaron and her behind. Joshua's been with Moses atop the mountain, but not in the cloud. Joshua's not in the cloud in his presence, but he's near him. Hence, as they descend and begin to hear the noise in the camp, the sinful feasting, Joshua, and again, you can forgive him for this, Well, he thinks it's war. Is it another band of Amalekites? Who is it that's sprung up on us? And we would say, oh, Joshua, if only you knew. Moses, verse 18, is quick to correct. Look at verse 18. But he said, this is Moses, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Of course, that will be affirmed with what they both encounter next. We keep reading in verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. God is, of course, not the only one angry here. Moses' righteous anger burns hot. Do you see that in verse 19? And in that anger, he takes the fresh graven tablets. Do you see this? Chapter 31, verse 18, they've been freshly cut, freshly given, and he takes those tablets and he does what? He throws them down and he breaks them, throws them from his hand and breaks them. In a way, it's an act that says, These were for you, Israel. But now, in light of what I've come down and seen, these are meaningless to you. These were for you, but they're meaningless. Further, not only have you broken these tablets by your great sin, but you shall not only bow down to what you want, and here it is, you will consume it. Giving over principle, there's a bit of Romans 1 in here. This is what you want? Let me ground it down to its finest bits and you will ingest it. And thus, in verse 20, he grinds the golden calf to powder and makes Israel what? Drink it. The consequence hardly needs to be pressed, beloved, does it? You know what it's like to drink of your own sin. You know the bitter taste. Now, in the wake of that, we realize there's no excuse, right? More than a hand in the cookie jar moment, right? They shout so loud, Joshua thinks it's war, right? More than that, this is nakedness. Aaron, you were left with a task. You know what God said. So what of it, Aaron? What of it? You missed your opportunity before. Now step to the fore. All right, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Here it is, Aaron. Now's your chance. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hard. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Aaron, firmly in the line of his great-granddad Adam, right, says, verse 2, My Lord, and note that small l, Lord. Oh, Moses, I know you're in charge. My Lord, don't get mad at me. You know the people, right, Moses? You know the people. They're evil. They are. Not us. They are. The excuse that tries to minimize, don't get mad, my Lord, right? Don't you see this with great sin? Can we just get past this? Right? Let's please. Can we... Let's minimize the whole thing. I know it's sin, but come on. The excuse, it's the blame shift. It's them. It's not evil. It's them. Her. Him. Not me. And then most pathetic is the excuse that is downright insulting. Did this, and out of the fire, wouldn't you know, out popped a calf. The only thing more saddening here is the reality that God's people still use these excuses, don't we? We still do. We offer up spontaneously generating calves out of fire. We still have that excuse in our kits, don't we? Oh, sure, it doesn't look like that. But we have so many. I don't even need to list them. You've been around Jim... For some time, you've definitely heard him say something like this. He says this. The capacity for human beings to rationalize bad behavior knows no bounds. That is so true, is it not? It knows no bounds. In fact, it defies logic itself. Out pop this calf. It's true. And here, we're not talking about other human share, Right? Like, let, Let's church be clear on this. We're not talking about them and we would expect them and whatever that would be. We're not talking about unbelievers. Who's in view in this text? God's people. Out popped this calf. God's people. I don't know where it came from. God's people. It's their fault. God's people. You know how evil they are. God's people. We cannot take comfort here in thinking, yes, you know the world, they make excuses, and that's why the world is the way that it is. Oh, you know, people do that, they act like that. No, Westmount, this account is for us. God's people of a different age, but by way of example for us, 1 Corinthians 10. That is what must sober our hearts. It's almost like we've taken a step back here, right? I mean, God relented now what? This finally offer let's finish the passage and then make a final comment or two verse 25 and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said who is on the Lord's side come to me Here is another opportunity and all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them thus says the Lord God of Israel put your sword on your side each of you and go to and fro From gate to gate, throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Wow. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I'll go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Moses continuing to act on behalf of man and God issues an offer. Look back at verse 26. Punishment is coming, but first note this. Punishment looms, but first note this. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. What an offer in light of this chapter. After the quick rebellion, the righteous anger, the lame excuse... This, an offer, a merciful offer, an offer to be spared. The Levites are about to kill those who cling to their calf and play, and they do, 3,000 fall. There's likely about 600,000 men there, probably 2 million if you include women and children. 3,000 couldn't let go. One wonders of the 3,000, you might say, was it worth it? Not just to die partying and playing, but I mean, listen, to die eternally rejecting the offer of God. Of course, the offer of God still remains. It goes far beyond Sinai. It extends to the return of his son, and it's still there. What of you today, right? This text always begs questions of us. I don't know your stead here today. What brought you here? maybe you resonate to a piece of this text and you're clinging to an idol a party an indulgence a piece of self and you can't let go beloved March 21st tomorrow comes with no guarantee this may be your last full day on earth this may be it And then what? You face more than the sword of a Levite. You face wrath. And you have your name removed from the book God has written, verse 33. That is like the book of remembrance in Malachi and the book of life in Revelation. Different names, but one purpose to record the names of those of God to those primarily, firstly, that are God's own, His chosen, those whom He foreknew, but also flowing out of that, those known because they accept the offer. The offer extended here, Exodus 32. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. The offer extended upon entry of the promised land from the next leader. Do you remember Joshua on conquest offered in Joshua 24, 15? Before we go and before we do this, second generation, before we do this, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Do you remember that? The offer extended on another mountain years later by the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings eighteen twenty one. How long, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, the false god, the idol, different in some senses to the golden ox and calf, then follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's an offer that continues. And then there was the offer extended by the great intercessor himself. Do you hear him in Matthew 7, 13, 14? Enter. That's the call. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The offer still stands. The offer still stands. From Sinai to the edge of Canaan, Carmel, Galilee, Peterborough. The offer still stands. It's the offer regarding your great sin, but it is an offer in light of your great sin from a greater God. That Something can be done about your great sin that you can't do. The offer from Yahweh by way of Moses principally is still the offer today. And what do you say of it? Who is on the Lord's side? Because God says in this text, to any, any that hear it, he says, Come to me. Let's pray. Father, we are in light of that text as we just bow our heads and recognize the, the heaviness, the weight of sin. And Lord, we consider where we'd be at the foot of a mountain naked with your wrath looming if it wasn't for the great intercessor, your son, our great high priest. We thank you there is something greater than our sin. Lord, let us live in light of that reality, what we have been given, that offer to us still for those that have not yet accepted it. God, we pray that they would. And Lord, again, we just give you thanks and praise for the glorious truths that are found not only here of intercession, but of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has dealt with our great sin. Amen.